Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society, and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi, friends, and welcome back to Brussels Bytes. This is Dimitar reporting from murky Brussels, where the days are getting shorter and the cold is creeping in. Winter is indeed coming. Thankfully, this season, we won't be counting COVID cases daily and Europe will enjoy a normal festive period, hopefully. That being said, health remains an essential topic, even though underexplored within the Brussels bubble. For our today's podcast, we'll focus on e-health and data science in medicine. And I'm really happy that today we're joined by two excellent professionals to walk us through this topic. Xiaoying Wu is a vice president for data science platforms and privacy at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. And Angel Martin is a senior director for digital health and taxation advocacy for EMEA at Johnson & Johnson. Thank you both for joining us. I'll just want to kick it off and, and, and focus on e-health a bit. And, and this has, has always been a buzzword, you know, especially in Brussels also, I'm sure also in, in the States. Um, but talking about e-health, I guess it took a global pandemic for many of us to actually realize the importance of revolutionizing healthcare. Was the pandemic an important critical jun juncture for Johnson & Johnson? I mean, not only because of the vaccine rollout, but also for the digitization of the whole sector and breakthrough data. First of all, uh, thank you, Dimeta, to inviting us uh, to this podcast. We're very excited and honored to be here. And to your question, uh, looking at the digital revolution within our industry, there are lessons learned from pandemic, including the advancement and synergies before, between the life science and also data science. Big data, increased compute powers, and all the algorithms and artificial intelligence advance, advancement ultimately helped you know, the patients and solving us, helping us to solve complicated problems as well. So from the most developed markets to our lower to medium income countries, we have shown the data science can bring significant benefits. You know, we were thinking about how do we improving access to care so everyone, especially the underrepresented populations, can benefit from the quality, quality healthcare service that they need, when they need it, and regardless where they live. That's kind of the one highest priority for all of us. And when we're thinking about that, how do we treating each individual differently? How do we advancing precision medicine by using personalized care, improving individual patient outcomes, and delivering innovative healthcare solutions that serves and met patient needs? This is also very important. And building on top of it, we want to also using data science to enable efficiency health systems to deliver value-based care through the optimized service delivery, fast and accurate disease diagnosis as well. Last but not least, data science can also help us to connecting across 
healthcare ecosystem to increase the collaboration you know, within the ecosystem and leading to the greater healthcare provider resilience and a better patient experience. That's the ultimate goal we're trying to achieve here through data science. This is this is fascinating, and I just want to pick up on on something you you, you mentioned: the individualization of healthcare and and using data science uh, to pinpoint specific problems or make individual profiles. This this sounds like you know uh, sci-fi, but also yeah. is is an essential avenue in the future of e-health, right? Yeah, I think one of the key things to be understand here during the drug discovery and development problem you know, process, we see a lot of challenge to translate the treatment effect, the average, you know, every treatment effect we observed in the clinical trials to the, you know, point of, point of care, right? So that's always a challenge. So we need to have understanding what patient being treated in the real world, how we can tap into the information and the data collected when we're treating patients at the physician, at the hospital, at the clinic, in the surgical room, in the operating room, that information is very important for us to understanding the patient journey, the patient how being treated and how they respond to the treatment as well. And Angel, um, how did you see the pandemic in all of this? Was there a clear before and after moment when we talk about these issues, especially from a policy perspective? Thank you, Dimitar, also for having me today. Um, yeah, we certainly see uh, a change, um, but also we see, uh, I would say, uh, a change after the change because during COVID-19, there was the realization that we had to use digital technologies to, to basically enable some of the essential services in the point of care, like Shadin mentioned. And actually there was a realization during COVID-19 that actually the rules and the policies today are not fit entirely for purpose. It was very difficult for researchers uh, within Europe, but also around the world to collaborate and share data and gather insights together. No single country, no single researcher was able to really crack this, this problem and trying to, to address it. So, Collaboration was critical, but it was difficult. Um, and I think there, there has been momentum and discussions, and certainly in the European health data space, uh, actually in its foundational motivations, highlights actually the situation we went through uh, during the pandemic. So clearly there is a big opportunity. Now there is a change after the change because we certainly see that governments um, and policymakers for obvious reasons right now with the with many other crises that we're facing as a humanity, um, they are really potentially maybe putting not as much attention as an emphasis to the digital transformation of healthcare as we used to see uh, when we were having COVID-19. So we really hope that the momentum can be kept because I think we're gonna be facing not only now, but also in future more important challenges and also big opportunities like Xiaojing explained before. We'll uh, absolutely touch, up, touch upon um, AI and, and, and data, the things you, you, you mentioned, the data space as well. I'm really tempted, though, to uh, pivot back to Xiao Wing. Uh, it, it's you know, one of the first times I have an actual really in-depth technical person on, on this, this podcast. Usually we have uh, people with, with various backgrounds uh, talking about uh, public affairs or other geeky stuff. But 
you're the first person I have on the podcast who has actually a, a classical medical background as a, as a physician, but you also continue to specialize as a data scientist. So I'm really excited for you to tell us briefly about your role in data engineering and how you navigate the intricacies of dealing with healthcare data. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is um, actually very interesting and also a lot question I got a lot <laughs> as well. Um, so my role as uh, VP of Data Science Platform Privacy, uh, which is really focusing on managing end-to-end -end entire data and platform landscape, data governance, privacy, AI, ethic for the data science across Janssen R&D. Um, I have to say it's a, it's a very fun and impactful job I have um, you know, so far. It's one of my best uh, favorite job. And because it combines the medical science data and technology so that we can have a real impact on patients. And we have uh, teams of bilingual technical expertise and these individuals understand both science and technical requirements and they can translate between those who sit solely on one of the side or the other, right? And so that actually ensures the communication is clear, efficient, and effective, so we can deliver the best design solutions to our user community and also to advance, you know, R&D pipelines um, focused on the business priorities as well. When you're working with healthcare data, I guess this is this is not the same old basic way of, of um, using data in, in bulk. Um, in one of your recent interviews, I saw an interesting quote that it takes a lot of time to engineer the, the data before you can work with it. I guess there's also privacy concerns and other specific concerns. So how do you actually manage these data flows? Yeah, that's a great question as well. And uh, when we think about all the advancement we see in data science and uh, digital health, um, there's just uh, you know, a lot of, lot of new data coming and we can collect around a person or a patient, right? And we have data science applied to all different kinds of use cases in R&D from target discovery, lead identification, patient certification, all the way into the you know, clinical development, making sure we advancing you know, trial uh, acceleration and also optimization, improving efficiency of the clinical trials. And when we see that, as I mentioned, there's just so many data collected. It can come from sensor data, it can come from deep sequencing data, it can come from clinical trials, as well as real world, I just mentioned as well. And though all this data is actually pose a significant challenge to data management, the data analysis, in addition to organizing organizational challenge because data silos, because additional burdens to fully unlock the value of the health data. So our team, our data engineers and, and data scientists here is actually is a, a team to manage and process, integrate this diverse and disparated data to enable large scale data analysis and develop models across industry. Yeah, indeed. These are one of the, the biggest challenges of today, but I guess we need, to, and you guys need to crack them. <laughs> I, I want to turn to, to Angel, um, pivoting away from technical and, and data issues back to the policy arena. Angel, how difficult is to navigate issues like health data, uh, especially when we talk about public affairs in a city like Brussels? Uh, you know, privacy remains uh, key here, of course. 
but we also need to make progress in digital healthcare. How do you write the, how do we find the right balance? Um, and I think that's a great uh, question, Dimitar, that um, actually policymakers will need to be discussing. I think, listen, the, the, the reality is that uh, we firmly believe actually that we must unlock really the, the power of health data. And for multiple purposes that uh, Xiaojing explained very well, empowering patients, but we also need to beat cancer. We need to find better treatments. We need to support healthcare professionals who are really at the, at the edge of burnout uh, in many places. We need to establish a more resilient healthcare system. But for that, as you say, we need to strike a good balance between bringing all that data and unlock its power and also protecting individuals. And there, we believe that the bedrock of all that is really trust, trust and partnerships. Because only through that you can really bring, and that's the other bottom line, you can really bring greater health equity. I think I heard also from a representative from one of the patient organizations that actually the bottom line of that, and that's for every patient and every of us as an individual, is that we want more health equity. We want really more health, better health for everyone. Uh, but obviously we don't want to make that at the risk of uh, undermining individual rights. So we need clear policies and those policies need to be clear. They need to be harmonized. They need to be understood by everyone and therefore provide, let would say a clear framework that will support the access, the use, the sharing, the flow of the data um, that also bring in what we will call a sustainable health data ecosystem. And also in more concrete details, when we implement privacy rules and privacy safeguards, they need to be proportional to the risk. Certainly we need to protect the individual, but there needs to be a very clear and consistent interpretation and implementation. What we see today is that there is a difference on how we protect individual privacy rights from one hospital to another hospital, from one region to another region, from one country to another country. So you can imagine that navigate through that fragmentation today is a very complicated and I would say daunting task for any stakeholder. I'm not talking only about industry, I'm talking about public research, I'm talking even about governments when they want to collaborate with each other. Um, and, that, and this fragmentation sometimes comes from uh, what I would call unclear guidance that we need to maybe uh, overturn. We need to bring guidance that provides more predictable framework where rules really apply across the board and where we also go to even specific scenarios that give you a very clear understanding on how you protect the data, but at the same time, get all the benefits uh, that, that that data can provide for. So those, those are really essential, uh, but I want to, again, really un underline, and, and that's really critical for the, for the mission of J Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson is a company that is driven by a credo. Our credo is, uh, is not only what we call at the usual uh, business code of conduct, but it's also even a mission, it's a strategy of how we brand, uh, how we actually change the trajectory of health for humanity. And for us in that commitment, one of them is clearly that we need to protect the privacy of those who entrust us with personal information. And that in addition to all the laws that apply to our companies and all of our operating companies, we really try to maintain global standards and global policies that really match those, those levels of ambition. 
Global policies indeed, but let me quickly follow up on something you, you said. This is very interesting. Even different hospitals have different treatment of, of data when it comes to their protocols. I mean, I, I would assume that when we compare different countries, it, it kind of makes sense. But you want to tell me that even the hospitals themselves have different protocols on, on data, correct? That's very... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I will elaborate, but I would like also Xiaojin to share her practical experience because Xiaojing is facing that herself when she's trying to, to put data together. But the reality is that the privacy officers of any organization, I'm talking about hospitals, but as you know, GDPR applies beyond healthcare, right? Um, and any privacy officer needs to have an appropriate and adequate uh, privacy risk management strategy. And that privacy risk management strategy is also informed by the local and the national and obviously the European uh, uh, rules and legislation. And, and they're trying to do to the best interest, obviously, to protect the data, the personal data that they are managing and handling as data controllers, as they would typically uh, use the term, um, while at the same time, uh, while at the same time trying to make sure that that data can be used because GDPR was meant to actually foster data use and data sharing. So that's, that's even in the objectives of the legislation. But the reality is that if you get a fragmented landscape um, as a privacy officer and you don't have clear guidance, then you, in the best interest of your organization and the individuals you're protecting, you design your own, your own strategy. Now, if you have more guidance, which comes across the board, then potentially you bring more consistency on how that risk management should take place. And, and maybe I already talked enough because actually Xiaojin is a practitioner, so she knows uh, by heart and direct experience how that looks like. Yeah, feel free to, to jump in. Thank you. Um, I think there's a one thing I want to highlight is patient, patient privacy is always the highest priority for us. And so technology can help in combination of the policy here. And we look into different solutions. One of the key solutions in the space is actually called federated learning or federated analysis. And that is actually where you set up a federated network across hospitals, even within hospitals, you can set up a network. The reason to do that is actually you can have the data, you know, never leaves the hospital, but you can push analysis across multiple hospitals to understanding, for example, patient journey, understanding the survivals, understanding how patients being treated. Jensen has been doing this for some time. And one of the program they are doing is called HONOR and stands for uh, Hematology Outcome Network in Europe. This is a collaboration between public and private hospitals, which is aimed to increase understanding the hematological cancers and improve the outcome for patient access Europe by the harnessing all the powers we have from data analysis as well as the great network of the hospitals will be part of this collaboration. And right now the, the network actually runs as a federated model. The data is never leaves um, the hospital and is currently <clears throat> enable the participants across Europe to analysis over 23,000 data sets in the hematological malignancy space. We see a lot of great research studies coming out and we also have a lot of publishing results. So the insights can be contributed towards to improving the patient outcome to the society as well. This is uh, fascinating. I wanna jump back to, to um, Angel. 
um, and talk about a bit more about policy. How do you evaluate the developments so far when we talk about EU health data space? What, what more is needed for improving exactly these synergies we've been talking about in the last couple of minutes and indeed breaking these new scientific frontiers? Well, thanks, Dimitar. I, I think, um, as we explained before, and I think we, uh, the, the background is, is clear about uh, why we need an European health space. Data today is living in silos, it's fragmented, um, it's not connected enough to bring the insights that people like Xiaojin need in order to understand what's happening and find better treatment. So I, I think that's, that's clearly uh, already being explained, uh, not only obviously by us, but the European Commission, any healthcare stakeholder, and actually there is a multi-stakeholder statement that actually underlines the importance and the need of the European health data space. And that's because it could become not only a major shift to healthcare, uh, but also how it works from a foundational perspective. Um, and if, when you see the structure of the proposal, which has two parts uh, or two main blocks, if you like, uh, one really talks about empowering individuals. So today, we as Europeans cannot go from one country to another. We cannot cross borders and get our data with us so that we can receive um, a treatment with all the insights that our electronic health record will contain and from one country to another. So it, today there is a barrier for that cross-border healthcare. Um, but also the second part, which is the one that we've been talking, been talking the most so far, is really about how do we bring more innovation in healthcare, knowing that data science can do so much. Uh, and for us, the possibilities are limitless if we really get right that European health data space. And maybe that brings me maybe to some comments that I would already like to share, if you allow me. I think the first one is the European health data space, like any other European piece of legislation, really need to bring harmony across member states, but also it needs to simplify things. It needs to drive and incentivize innovation, not burden it. So we need to, for that, to raise the bar across the EU, because we already see some centers of excellence. I think Finland is clearly one of them, Estonia, Denmark. I think France is moving really at very, a very speed, uh, a very high speed, but others are still behind. And we don't want to leave in any member state behind. We don't want to have several speeds in how we run that digital transformation. Um, so we need to avoid that the, the legislation and, and what goes around the legislation actually further fragments the EU rather than uniting it. Uh, legal certainty, as you know, it's clear. I mean, if we don't have a clear uh, framework of interpretation, then we get into fragmentation, uh, which is what we were talking about before. Um, and, and when it comes to the part, because as, as I said, there are two blocks. Uh, the second block, which is more about how do we use uh, data for innovation, for regulatory uh, decision-making, for lawmaking, et cetera, for AI and machine learning. Um, for that part, which is called health data at EU, we believe that the European health data space can build bridges, but we need to be careful um, because uh, as we saw right now, there can be fragmentation and that fragmentation can actually make it more difficult actually to, to, to collaborate. So today there are certain terms and definitions in the piece of legislation and the obligations for us, for example, as a data holder, 
uh, which are a bit unclear can create confusion. Um, so for example, one of the things we, we would like really the, the proposal to, to, to get improved, particularly when it goes through the European Parliament, is how do we actually make this piece of legislation, um, let's say, more compatible and aligned with existing international agreements, for example, on intellectual property rights, but also with existing European legislation like GDPR, we mentioned before, but also the other uh, wave of pieces of legislation that we're going through, like the Data Act, the AI Act, uh, the Data Governance Act, which was already approved, right? So there are many more and more and more pieces of legislation in this space, which are so needed, but they all need to come together. And we really wonder how that will really uh, make it work. On top of that, we think the potential is huge. So I think we need to be really visionary around which type of data could the European health data space promote in terms of generation, but also sharing and flow purposes, how we can actually think of the healthcare of tomorrow and innovate tomorrow. And that, Xiaojin can speak much better to, to that. Um, all that needs to be reflected well in the final text. And that's something we'd like to, to look. But again, as I would say, very promising uh, proposal, very right step. I think it's going to keep the European Parliament and the Council very busy in the next few months. I, I just wonder how um, dealing with so many issues and so many complex issues, what's your impression in dealing with stakeholders and, and, and EU politicians? I mean, are they responsive to these messages and they do they actually grasp these, these topics given their complexity and their technical nature? I think I think to be to be frank, many do. And actually, when you see the number of reactions that came out of the proposal, um, you see that already uh, the Brussels bubble, if you like, but also beyond, is quite educated on the topic. Uh, now, the the problem is how do we address the multiple challenges that will come? Because one of the challenges also is going to be how a member state can bring this into the national law, also because there needs to be an infrastructure, there needs to be an investment. So there are many different things. Also, how do we really make sure that patients feel that the data has been protected? How do we make sure that healthcare professionals are not overburdened uh, with the requirements that may come from this piece of legislation? So how do we address all these different challenges that every stakeholder has? Uh, but we were able, uh, across many different um, stakeholders, including patients, healthcare professionals, hospital representatives, industry, and when I mean industry, I mean pharma, tech, uh, medical technologies, we all put a consensus statement around that. Uh, now, I think the one of the risks, always, as always, is that we simplify too much some technical challenges or some complex challenges. And we need to certainly find uh, simple solutions to some of them, but others, they need to get into a nuanced discussion. And I think the, the, the issue is rich enough for us to really have an informed conversation. Uh, and we believe that actually the platform that the European Parliament and the Council are gonna provide in terms of public uh, discussion uh, are gonna be essential to bring all those points together. And sorry, and Dimitar, if you allow me, I think, and I mentioned before, but I want to double down that, uh, partnership and dialogue are essential. If we don't collaborate across the board, if we don't, don't hear every voice, I think we're gonna miss a lot. And actually, you may have the best legislation, the best infrastructure, but if the people are not willing to cooperate because they haven't really been part of the process, then it's gonna be very challenging to put this in practice. So I think that collaboration and dialogue 
for me, it's an essential uh, of this process. Yeah, I, I hear you loud and clear. This is, this is an essential message indeed. Um, I would like to structure the, the next couple of minutes on another really, really important issue when we talk about uh, data and health. And this is something to both of you, so feel free to jump in. How important is machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, in your work, especially showing um, there are folks who think that we're over-exaggerating the influence of breakthrough algorithms, uh, but how has the sector evolved and how do you measure the potential of AI in your future work, you know, both on the technical level and also on the, on the policy level? Thank you. Um, this is a very good question. And uh, first of all, AI and machine learning is very important for our work. It has been transformed so many other industries like retail, finance. I think the time is really ripe for that transformation to take hold in medicine as well. And I have mentioned a few examples in our early conversation. I think data science is the key to unlock innovation and the health innovation need sharing data. And and the transform the way we prevent and treat and cure disease as well, and how we collect and analyze and understand the data to deliver better insights and outcomes has become more sophisticated and impactful than ever. In R&D particularly, data science is actually generating insights to help us better understanding, define the disease we are tackling, it help us more effectively determine which compound in our libraries show the most promise and assess their safety profiles before we even go into a clinical trial. To enable us to bring the best ones to the clinical development, it helping us design and execute better and more efficient clinical trials, and it also helps us to determine which medicine is actually best suited for which patients, and enable early detection and trade of the disease, leading the in general to much better outcomes to those with pro, you know, very severe and progressive um, disease as well. And our company has a very bold ambition and we are trying to change the trajectory of the healthcare and a clear vision of transformation innovation as well. And that what we want to deliver for patients and the community. And I think data science is, is a key ingredient of that. And hey, what about policy when we talk about AI? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and, I, 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 and it's quite topical, right? But I think I, I want to maybe, uh, let's say, emphasize something that Shijin said, because certainly AI as a, as a key, let's say, component of the overall uh, data science uh, can really bring um, us to transform and to really bring innovation faster, faster than ever. And I think like uh, our former chief scientific officer used to say, patients are waiting. I think it's really important that time of the time is of the essence here. And, and our CEO, Joaquin Duato, um, in European, Spanish, uh, as I am as well, he actually famously say that well, he believes that the healthcare will advance more in the next 10 years than in the last century. And data science is gonna be a big, a big component of that. So the ability of processing hundreds of millions of data points and combine them with the genetic information uh, with the use of AI machine learning, that will also make drug discovery and development smarter, faster. But also 
It will help, for example, surgeons to get better insights about the patients they're gonna treat while they're treating and after treating them. So that actually you can make almost every surgeon have at their, finger, uh, at their fingertips the best medical knowledge uh, really real time. To, uh, and that's really, it's something that AI um, and automation can certainly help with. Uh, so we see big promise with that. That's why we also, as we were discussing before, we want that the regulatory frameworks, which uh, the European Union is establishing right now also on AI, are also designed to drive that innovation and make it possible. I think it's it's good to to close on a on a positive uh, note. Patients are waiting, but this doesn't stop the people in charge for developing these solutions to hopefully push the way forward. Um, dear listeners, these were the voices of Shaoing Wu and Angel Martin from the Johnson and Johnson Company. Keep warm, dear friends, and stay tuned to Brussels Bites. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. Follow us on SoundCloud for more.